Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, Paul writes, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. But as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. In Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11, God is dealing with Israel. In chapter 9, Paul describes both the gifts of Israel and his own personal grief concerning Israel. In chapter 9, Paul deals with Israel's past. In chapter 10, he deals with Israel's spiritual present and present condition. And in chapter 11, he will deal with Israel's spiritual condition and spiritual future. It's time here, as we close the end of chapter 9, that we remember the theme of the book of Romans. If we were to sum it up in a single word, it would be that word righteousness. Remember in chapters 1 through 3, Paul presents the need for righteousness. In chapters 3 through 8, God's provision of righteousness in the person of Christ. In chapters 9 through 11, how Israel rejects God's righteousness. And the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish nation fills Paul's heart with sorrow in verses 1 through 5. Remember, Paul grew up in a a religious tradition that was rich, rich, rich in heritage, rich in relationships, rich in revelation. Paul has spoken about those privileges in verses 4 and 5. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants. Let me ask you a question. Did you grow up In a religious tradition that was rich in relationships and revelation. Perhaps some of you, like me, might have grown up in Roman Catholicism. You might have grown up in liberal Protestantism. But as the world gets smaller and smaller, we find people who grew up in Hinduism, in Buddhism... Paganism. Maybe you grew up in a New Age household. Maybe you grew up in a place where they had little faith or no faith at all. Or maybe you're one of those people who've actually grown up right here in Calvary Chapel. And Calvary Chapel has become your religious tradition. Whether it's Roman Catholicism or liberal Protestantism or evangelicalism, sometimes we want to replace our tradition with truth. 
and with the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul has come to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Paul has argued that true Israel is not simply a natural seed, but an elect seed. God saves people on the basis of his faithfulness in verses 6 through 13. According to his justice in verses 14 through 18. According to his righteousness in verses 19 through 29. God's faithfulness is not based on race or blood or family. Paul could have easily have said what some of you have said. I was born a Jew. I'll live a Jew. I'm going to die a Jew. I was born a Gentile. I'm going to live a Gentile. I'm going to die a Gentile. I was born a Catholic, liberal, Protestant, Hindu. Fill in the blank. Fill in whatever blank you think that you need to fill in. That's the way I was born. That's the way I'm live. That's the way I'm going to die. But Paul has encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. Personally, Paul, in his zeal to persecute and execute Christians, finds himself on the road to Damascus. He sees a shining light. He hears a pressing voice. Saul, Saul. It's hard to kick against the goads or the pricks, that is, the pricks of his consciousness as he begins to understand there's something wrong. There's something wrong with you, Paul. There's Saul, there's something wrong. And I've come to fix it. I've come to be your savior and redeemer. The person who will forgive your sins so that you can walk with me. Paul understood that God's election wasn't based on Natural descent in verses 6 through 10. Human merit in verses 11 through 13. Paul argues that God chose Jacob over Esau before either son was born. Absent their character. Absent their temperament. God's choice was based on God's promise and God's plan. And that plan included the plan of salvation and redemption and forgiveness and righteousness based on a Messiah. Based on faith in Christ. And Paul cites Hosea in verses 25 through 26. He cites Isaiah in verses 27 through 29. He basically comes to the point, the Jews are on the inside and now they're on the outside. And the Gentiles who are on the outside are now on the inside. And this is how he concludes it. That people who look for grace apart from the law aren't going to be able to find it. Paul concludes the chapter with the way of salvation. Both for Jew and for Gentile. The way of redemption, the way of righteousness, the way of forgiveness, the way of reconciliation. Is faith and trust, confidence in Jesus In verse 30, look what it says. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. Paul presents a paradox. He reiterates what we've already learned. The Jews who were looking for righteousness, who were looking for redemption, who were looking for salvation, didn't find it. 
And the Gentiles, who weren't even looking for it, found it. So much for seeker services. Why? 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 Because Israel sought salvation by keeping the law. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. By the way, in verse 30, there's the word attained. You should underline it. In verse 31, there's the word attained. You should underline it. Because these two English words translated attained in verse 30 and 31 are two different Greek words. As a matter of fact, in verse 31, it's the word kata, laban. That word means to grasp or to seize or to overtake. But here in verse 30, where it says, have attained to righteousness, it's the Greek word f, thasane. It's a different word. It means to get to or to arrive at one's destination. It means quite literally to arrive at. One Bible scholar and language expert noted, quote, the meaning is substantially the same. Only the imagery by the words differ. The former being that of laying hold of a prize. And the latter of arriving at a goal, unquote. The Jewish people attempted to follow the law of Moses and the revelation given by the prophets and did not succeed, but the Gentiles were able to lay hold of the prize while the Jews never arrived at the goal. Why, why, why? Because if Judaism is a journey, it's a journey that's supposed to take you into the arms of Jesus. You see, Judaism isn't just simply Judaism. It is a a way of thinking about how you can come to God on the basis of righteousness. And remember, the basis of righteousness is a full, real, personal relationship with Jesus. As a matter of fact, since Jesus is the goal of Judaism, most Jews have not arrived. By the way, the key word in verse 30 is righteousness. And remember, the word righteousness means the character or the quality of being right or just. In Old English, it was spelled right-wiseness. That's where we get that word. Righteousness is an old Anglo-Saxon word which meant... Right wiseness. It was, and when applied to the Lord, it usually meant the character or the rightness that was consistent with God's character. In Romans chapter 8, verse 10, Paul wrote, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Same word. Righteousness translates another Greek, Greek word, die. It's the same word here. It's the same word that's used 49 times in the book of Romans. 
Now again, the word can have various meanings in Paul's epistle depending on the context. In the broadest context, it's a legal pronouncement of rightness based on God's declaration. So when Paul uses the term, he means by it usually it's God rendering his verdict of not guilty on your behalf. Righteousness isn't living a a certain kind of a life or even dying in a certain kind of life, but rather a judicial pronouncement of rightness based on the approval of God. This is the righteousness that is imputed by God through Jesus and then imparted by God on the basis of faith in Christ. So the reoccurring theme and the reoccurring argument is righteousness must be found in Christ. Do you understand that? That means not found in a religious tradition or a religious persuasion, but found in Christ. In Isaiah chapter 32, verse 17, it says, the work of righteousness shall be Peace and the effects of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. And what the prophet meant was peace with God and the absence of a condemning heart nagging you that something is wrong with you. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him. Righteousness. Again, what does that mean? Accepted by God on the basis that you believe the promise of God. And what's the biggest promise of all? I'll save you. I'll forgive you. I'll heal you. I'll redeem you. I'll reconcile you to myself. So what does Paul mean when he uses the phrase, the righteousness of faith? He's using it in relationship to Jesus. It's the voluntary and sincere change of mind that the sinner embraces when the sinner turns from the sin and turns to the Lord Jesus. Later, Paul will write in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It's the message of hope. It's the message of salvation. It's the message of the gospel. Faith comes from hearing the message of the gospel. And that message is Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus has done it all. The writer of Hebrews says, But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In chapter 11, verse 6. So, the sinner is saved by faith. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Paul has already written in Romans 5.11. We're saved by faith. We're sanctified by faith. We're reconciled to God by faith. We're made right with God. By faith. And so grace isn't found in Judaism, Hinduism, Catholicism, liberal Protestantism, 
Where can grace be found? Where does a person go to look and find grace? It's in the person of of Jesus. So people looking for grace in the law, look what Paul writes, but Israel, that's the adversative, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Remember, attained meaning grasped, seized, overtook. And so when Paul writes, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness, which law is he talking about? He's talking about the law of Moses, and he's talking about the revelation of Moses. He's talking about all of the things that Israel pursued in order to embrace and attain righteousness, but they misstepped because the law of righteousness will reveal the law of disobedience. And the law of disobedience will cause you to cry out for a savior. This is what Paul means in Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 when Paul writes, knowing, knowing, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus. Do you, do you know what he means when he says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. It's his way of saying, we, the Jews, we, the Pharisee, we, the people who have grown up in this religious tradition, we've come to grips with the fact that being a Pharisee and being a Jew and being a person who pursued righteousness on the basis of the law discovered that it couldn't take place. So rather, we have believed in Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And then Paul writes, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. So William MacDonald, writing about this verse, says, quote, Israel, on the other hand, which sought justification on the basis of law-keeping, never found a law by which they might obtain righteousness. Unquote. In other words, trying to keep the rules and trying to obey the revelation and trying to never be a bad person and trying to live a sin-free life didn't work. It turns out that the law of righteousness is really faith. And trust in Jesus Christ. And so Paul talks about the different religions in, in this sense. That there is a way of thinking that disconnects you from righteousness and confidence. And so the big rock in the middle of the road. Look what it says in verse 32 and verse 33. Paul says, why? Why did this happen? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Again, look at Paul's question and his answer. Why was righteousness kept from the Jews? Because they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, unquote. 
So why was it kept from him? Because they didn't keep it. They didn't seek it by faith. Now, this should cause each and every one of you to pause for a moment and ask a different question. The different question is, why is righteousness not only kept from the Jews, but why is it kept from anyone at any time, under any circumstance? It's because there are people who want righteousness on the basis of something other than Jesus, other than his love, other than his blood, other than his sacrifice, other than his death, other than his resurrection. If you'll be honest, you've done exactly that at least at some point in your life. You may have asked the question, why does it have to be by grace? And why does it have to be by Jesus? And why can't other people be saved? The righteousness was not kept from the Jews because God hated the Jews or misled the Jews or begrudged the Jews. Salvation and redemption Forgiveness and reconciliation is not kept from people because God hates them or because God despises them or because God is trying to keep them in the dark. It's because they stubbornly and persistently refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and rather embrace a righteousness of personal merit or obedience to Moses' law. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over a stone that Paul refers to and the Bible speaks of as being the rock of offense. By the way, the word stumbling or stumbled is very interesting. It's the Greek word pros, kopto. It means to strike in the sense of your hand or your foot against something. I uh, was born with a congenital defect. The congenital defect is found in my Achilles tendon. Most people have a certain length in their Achilles tendon. I was born without one. And because I was born with this congenital defect, it made it, as a, as a small child, almost impossible for me to walk because I would walk on my toes. I, I, I couldn't plant my heel and then my toe. Most people walk heel, toe, heel, toe because they have an Achilles tendon. And so as a little child, I had to undergo physical therapy where they would try to stretch the tendon. They didn't want to cut me up at that age and, and insert a tendon, so they gave me Frankenstein monster shoes and braces so that I would be forced to walk heel and toe and heel and toe. I was literally born to stumble. And it would cause no end of frustration both for me and my mother because I would not wear shoes and I would walk on my toes. And when you're walking on your toes and you live in the middle of a desert, you're always hitting rocks and pavement. And so I would come home with bloody toes. And my mom would just get so angry. 
the Jews kept stumbling their collective toes on Christ. Have you ever tried to walk in the dark? Have you ever, where it's been pitch black and you don't see anything and all of a sudden your foot hits something hard unexpectedly and there's pain that shoots up and down your body? If you've ever tried to walk into a wall or if you've ever tried to walk into an object, your first tendency when you find yourself tripping over and over and over again is to remove the object of offense. But what do you do if it's an immovable rock? What do you do if it's a giant mountain? You might try to walk around it. You might try to walk over it. You might try to tunnel through it. You might even try to put rubber baby bubby bu- wait rubber baby buggy bumpers <laughs> on the object. Imagine you're tripping and you go, I know what I'll do. I'm going to get some cords. I'm going to get some styrofoam and I'm going to wrap the rock in styrofoam so that when I knock into it, it won't feel so bad. That's what philosophers and scientists and world religions have done to Jesus. They put a social or cultural or theological bumper on Jesus to make him less blunt, less hard, less offensive. For many people, Jesus is a sleep number bed. Okay. Mm, I I need a Jesus who's really soft and comfortable. So my Jesus is a 19. Maybe you need a Jesus who's a little more firm. So you bump the number up to 50. Or maybe you need a Jesus who's absolutely firm. And so you bump him up to 100. You can make him as hard or as soft as you need in order to lie comfortably in the place where you think that you're looking. But what happens, what happens when you remove the theological bumpers or the cultural bumpers or the religious bumpers and you examine Jesus not on the basis of what you want him to be, but on what he really is. You see, Jesus is is, is, as exactly hard and as exactly soft as the New Testament reveals. This is what Jesus means when he says, come to me, come to me, believe in me, trust in me. And so the nation of Israel, by and large, stumbled over God's way of righteousness. And what is that way? It's the big rock in the middle of the road. It's faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul argues the simple pursuit of righteousness doesn't guarantee righteousness. Just because a person wants to be right doesn't make them right. Did the Jews follow hard after righteousness? Touch not, taste not, handle not. The answer is yes. At least from the Gentiles' perspective, the answer is yes. 
Look at how hard these people are at being religious. And you've seen it. You, you, many of you have grown up in religious traditions where you've watched a person and you watch them go to church or you watch them go to, to synagogue or you watch them go to their temple or you watch them go to wherever it is that they go. You watch them sweat blood and they, they read their Bibles and they have Bible studies and they deny themselves and they do all kinds of different things. And you think, surely their zeal and surely their religiosity, surely that's got to count for something. And the Bible says it counts for nothing. Remember, the problem with Israel's zeal was that it was rooted and grounded in human performance and religious tradition. Because it was rooted and grounded in human performance and religious tradition and not in the teaching of the Bible or the example of the lives lived by faith. Again, think of Abraham. Think of everyone in Hebrews chapter 11, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, of Samson and Samuel. Not only did Israel stumble over the way of righteousness, but they stumbled over the works of the law. And so any system of righteousness, any system of righteousness before God, based on human performance, is doomed to failure. But God, 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 I'll, I'll go to church, I'll buy a Bible, I'll, I'll quit smoking, I'll quit drinking, I'll quit doing this, I'll quit doing that. And it's probably a good idea for you to buy a Bible. And I'm grateful that you go to church. But if that becomes the basis of your faith, then you're going to be in trouble. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the law to do them. Paul writes, the problem with the lawkeeper, they become a lawbreaker. The problem with the lawbreaker, curse, punishment. And so Paul reiterates in Galatians 3.10, but that no one, no one, no one, is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Those who are justified will live by faith. Faith in what? A religious faith? A philosophical or theological position that counts on personal goodness? No, he's talking about a confidence and a trust that comes holy on Jesus' name. Paul argues he attempts at keeping the law, winds up breaking the law, because people pick and choose a personal morality that they can attain to. Well, you know, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with those that do. Hey, well, guess what? You might be able to live that way for a little while. Not smoking, not chewing, not hanging out with people who are evil. 
evil. (laughs) But eventually something's going to happen. Eventually you're going to think or say something that disqualifies you from heaven and you've probably already done it. And so Paul says, righteousness has to come with confidence in what Jesus has done. And here's one of the things that's really, really interesting. You need to be justified in the sight of God. You see, those people who are self-satisfied or have fooled others don't necessarily fool God. And so this is the challenge that Paul brings up. God's plan becomes a stumbling stone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we read, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling stone. Unto the Greeks, foolishness. Look at verse 33 now. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Do you understand what Paul is? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. As a matter of fact, if you've ever had a chance to read the 8th chapter of Isaiah, in the verse that he quotes, this is the verse in, in its entirety. In Isaiah 8, 14, we read, He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling." And a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then in verse 15, and many among them shall stumble, unquote. The context of the passage is Isaiah's message to Judah and Israel from the Lord using the very names of Isaiah's children. God speaks of a judgment and salvation and restoration of the Jewish people back to their land. Isaiah's specific message was, tell Judah to neither fear nor compromise with your enemies in Isaiah chapter 8 verses uh, 5 through 16. But rather, the nation isn't supposed to trust. The pact that they made with Syria to protect Judah against her enemies. The people of Judah needed to join with Jehovah and allow Jehovah to be their rock. The point that Isaiah is making in the passage is that the Lord God is your refuge. He is your stone of safety. He is the true stone. He is the rock of salvation. He's the firm foundation. Or he's going to be the rock that's going to keep you from where you want to be. In Peter's first epistle, Jesus is called 
the living stone. Why? Because Jesus is the living God. Jesus is called the chief cornerstone in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, because the cornerstone unites the building, and Jesus unites the church, and Jesus unites all that God is doing in the affairs of human beings and in the life of the church. If the cornerstone isn't in its proper place, then the whole building will be in an improper place. And so Jesus is the chosen stone, the select stone, meaning the special stone. Warren Wearsby tells the story of, a, of meeting a woman at, at one of the conferences. He was a prolific author and he was at a Christian bookseller convention. And, and this woman introduced the person with her as a very special guest. He claimed to be Jesus Christ, the Lord. He had long hair and a grungy beard. And Dr. Wearsby reached out for one of his hands and he said, quote, I don't see any nail prints here. I don't see any scars. Why, you must be a fraud. You must not be the Lord Jesus Christ. You see... There are people who want a religion without a savior and without a sacrifice. And so, people stumbled. And by the way, the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jesus would serve or produce at least two things. It would provide a stumbling stone and a rock of offense for those who reject Jesus, or it would provide a source of redemption, exoneration, blamelessness, justification for everyone who would trust him. The believer would have a firm foundation. The unbeliever would have a stone to stumble upon. The believer will be justified because God will find no ground for shame or offense or disappointment. And you see, that's why Jesus is the big rock in the middle of the road. In this path, in this journey that we call life. Because if you're on the road and if you're taking the journey, you want the journey to at some point bring you to a place of forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation. Some will find in Christ a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. But others will come upon the rock and they'll pound themselves against it. They'll hammer themselves. They'll want the rock to go away because they want to have a right relationship with God apart from Christ, apart from grace, apart from salvation. And this is the reason Israel was temporarily set aside. It was a stubborn, willful, persistent, 
unbelief. And so if you're wondering whether you or anyone in your family can have a right relationship with God with a stubborn, willful, persistent unbelief, make no mistake about it, you will be set aside. This is what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone, the stone rejected by the builders has now become the chief cornerstone. The Gentiles were not the chosen people. They were not the privileged people. They did not have a rich heritage and they did not have rich revelation. Did the Gentiles benefit from the gifts and the privileges and the revelation of the true and living God? And the answer has to be yes, of course. But Paul, at the end of this chapter, raises the question of how a people so favored could be rejected. And a people not favored could be so accepted. Paul's answer, the Gentiles were willing to do what the Jews were unwilling to do. They were willing to believe in Jesus by faith. They were willing to place their confidence and their love and their hope and their affection and their future on Jesus Christ the Lord And so Paul has made a very persuasive argument that both Jew and Gentile are under sin and in need of grace and mercy because we've all sinned, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus remains a stumbling block, not simply to the Jew, but to the Muslim who refuses to recognize Jesus as God's final prophet who refuses to recognize Jesus as the true Messiah and the true Son of God, to the Hindu or the Buddhist who denies that it's Jesus' death and Jesus' cross that's the satisfaction for sin. Jesus remains a stumbling block to the atheist who admires Christ's wisdom and admires Christ's courage and admires his example or even his ethic, but he can't come to grips and believe that he's really God in the flesh. And Jesus is a stumbling block to the scientist who denies that Jesus is the true creator, that Jesus is the true source of knowledge. And he's a stumbling block to the legalist and the spiritualist who see in man's goodness as the appropriate means to please God apart from Christ and apart from the gospel. And Jesus remains a stumbling block to anyone and everyone who believes that they can find acceptance apart from his love and apart from his mercy and apart from his sacrifice. I want you to think about what you've just read. The people of Israel stumbled over the way of righteousness in verse 30. They stumbled over the works of the law in verse 31. And then they found themselves tripped up By the word of salvation in verse 33. 
And so if you stumble over the way of righteousness and you stumble over the works of the law, if you stumble over the word of salvation, then the chances are you too will be tripped up. The world is filled with people who have false hopes, false dreams, false confidence. I read the story of a 10K run that took place in Riverside, California. There were some 138 participants. But as they started off the race, the race was marked, and it was allegedly well marked, but 134 of the 138 runners misread the course. And the one person who said, we need to go this way, we need to go this way, could only find four other people to follow him. And all the rest of them were disqualified because they ran in the wrong direction. Sometimes it's so easy to think that we're running in the right direction because we're following the crowd. And remember, we live in a world where the crowd is running away from Jesus and the gospel. How in the world did the outsiders get in the inside? How in the world did the insiders find themselves on the outside? It's because they forgot what the Bible has always taught. That salvation is always by blood. Innocent. Shed. Applied. Salvation is always through a person. Jesus Christ. And salvation is always by grace. Preceded by faith. And followed by the Savior's peace. People desperately want a salvation apart from blood and apart from a person and apart from grace. But Paul has devoted his life and his ministry to make sure that you begin the race and that you follow the course and that you arrive at the finish line. With Jesus. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I again thank you and praise you. Lord, as we look at this particular passage, it's filled with so much information. But Lord, again, we pray that as Paul chips away at our false beliefs, that there's got to be another way, that there's got to be several ways that, that Surely the way to life can't be so limited and so narrow. And yet, Lord, we know that Jesus says narrow is the way that leads to life and there are few that find it. And broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many go in that direction. So, Lord... We pray that we would place our confidence completely in you. 
our trust completely in you. Lord, if we're going to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to you, we have to have you in our heart and in our life. Jesus, be our Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thank mm-hmm. you.